Okay, before the break, I re- reviewed in a sense uh, what we studied last week, stating the message of First Corinthians uh, chapter 12, that goes from verse 12 through 26. The message is that unity and diversity are essential in the body of Christ. That is, of course, the Church of Christ. I mentioned our first responsibility to that message, which is that you should recognize the unity and diversity in the Church of Christ. Now, we gave uh, two examples, that the Apostle gave us two examples of diversity in the Church of Christ, and that has to do first with ethnicity, Jew and Gentile. The second has to do with social standing, slave and free. Then, he also gave us two examples of unity, both related to the Holy Spirit. The first one is because of the sentence, again of verse 13, where he says, We were baptized by one spirit into one body. And the second, of course, is where he says, We are given uh, the one spirit uh, to drink. So we began looking at the first example of unity, that is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And I emphasize that the, in the first half that it is important for us to understand doctrine for the simple reason that your application cannot be complete without it. So I mentioned, I use family illustration whereby uh, usually members of families get along with each other to an extent, unless they start fighting about inheritance. But generally, even when they do that, they still go back to that basic, that they come from the same parents. And that is what guides them. So I emphasize that unless believers understand the basis of this unity we are talking about, that we can sometimes become disjointed. And that is to say, you may act one way in the public and act another way in private. Because you don't understand, you don't have this consistent understanding. It's, it's, you know, it's something that we have to consistently uh, put in our mind about who we are in Christ and what the other believer. Otherwise, it's very easy to slip into whatever mode you have been used to operating as an unbeliever. So it is important that we understand that the first unity, uh, the first example of unity is baptism by the Holy Spirit. And we pointed out that uh, some scholars take verse 13 to be concerned with uh, one baptism. But we, we indicated that no, there are two baptisms. So, based on that, we began to look at the first one, which is the baptism, we say, by the Holy Spirit. Of course, we spend the time, because of the word by, we say that it came from a Greek preposition with three possible interpretations. It can mean in, with, or by. And we explain each one, the implication of each one, uh, but we rejected the first two interpretations and focused on the third one as being what we, is intended here. So then, we 
concluded that by is the best interpretation. So without them, we ask, what then is baptism by the Holy Spirit? Now after looking through all kinds of uh, meanings of the use of the word uh, baptism or baptize, then we eventually say it is a ministry of the Holy Spirit whereby all believers are placed in Christ or initiated in Christ. That is to say that you are taken, you are placed in Christ. The other believer is taken and placed in Christ. So you form one family, that unit. Once you understand that, this is why you can now recognize where, yeah, where you look at your fellow believer, they're different, clearly different from a physical perspective. They are different from you. But that doesn't figure in anymore because you are now a mass in this common thing that you have in Christ. Regardless of the noise the whole world makes about all these things, it wouldn't affect you anymore because your mind is focused on this basis that you are in one body. You have been placed here and you're going to be there all eternity. And therefore, that's why you disregard whatever noise that you hear from the outside, from people. Ignore that. And pursue the reality that's in Christ. And so we indicated that it's important then for us to understand what this baptism by the Holy Spirit has uh, to apply it correctly in terms of the unity of believers. So anyway, with that, we also say that the apostle had to give this doctrine because there is confusion in Corinth. Because some people will say, well, I speak in tongue, I'm, I have the Holy Spirit. And they will say, well, I don't speak in tongue, therefore I don't. Paul said, no, no, no. You are missing the whole point. All of you are in one body. And this is how you come to be in that one body. And no one can be, uh, I mean, no one can be saved without the Holy Spirit in that person. So we went through what the apostle argued on that. That is, uh, it's not possible to believe in Christ without the Holy Spirit being in that person. Now, of course, he also assured each believer that uh, we are all in the body because uh, some have spiritual gifts and some uh, have different kinds and others uh, should not, based on their own gift, evaluate the other person as not being in Christ. Now, so following all these things that the uh, Holy Spirit conveyed through the Apostle Paul, we went in then to begin to introduce the second basis of unity, or second example of unity, which is the baptism. Uh, in this case, uh, actually, we'll call it baptism. Eventually, it'll be baptism with the Holy Spirit, but for now, uh, it is the thing that we read in the second clause of verse 13, where it says, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So we examined that word drink and eventually concluded that in our passage it means to participate. To participate. And that's why we stopped and that's why we pick up now. Anyway, so in any case then, our concern 
is what the apostle meant in the clause that we are considering. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now as we have indicated, the clause presents interpretation uh, difficulties as evident in the various interpretations offered by scholars. The reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, interpreted this sentence as a reference to the Lord's Supper, that is, the drinking of the cup. That's how they interpreted it. Now, their interpretation implies that by uh, believers drinking of the same cup in commemorating the death of Christ, that they have partaken of the same influences of the Holy Spirit. Now, which, in the way they uh, explain it, this, in their mind, is, as far as the way they explain it, they say, which in this case, that the Holy Spirit then descended alike on each believer, since there is nothing uh, that will keep that from happening if the ordinance, as they use the term of, if the Lord's Supper is conducted in the proper manner. Now that's the Holy Spirit descends on believers at that point. Now this interpretation, we say, really could not possibly be the case, since there's nothing in the words used in the verse that would lead credibility to such an interpretation. Furthermore, the Greek tense for drinking is in the aorist tense, indicating an action that has been completed in the past. Now, if the Last Supper were involved, the sentence would have been in the present tense to indicate something that keeps on taking place. Since the command of the Lord is for, the, uh, for a continual celebration of the Lord's Supper. So the Aries tense goes that interpretation out. Now another explanation of the second sentence, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, is to take it as saying the same thing as the first sentence. In other words, that being uh, made to drink of the one spirit is the same as baptism by the Holy Spirit. Or some contend though, that it means baptism in the spirit. Now there are at least two problems with it in this interpretation. First, if that were the interpretation, the apostle would have added nothing to his argument. Nothing. Now, his argument will be stronger if he invoked another doctrine that helps to explain the unity in the body of Christ. Because that's what he's trying to uh, give. So, if he just gave one doctrine and then repeat it, it will not really be a strong argument. I mean, there's nothing stronger in the second one. That will help the first one. So that's why we think it cannot be. Now, second though, this interpretation demands that both sentences then, uh, both sentences be considered as a hendiades. Uh, that's why you're talking about two, two related things and join them with the word and, so that the, first, the last part will explain the first part. But that will mean that the Greek word and here will mean that is, 
A meaning that will not make sense here though. Because the drinking of one spirit could not explain the idea of being in one body. As the first sentence teaches us. So, because when you use the Hanaides in the Greek in particular, you want the, the first sentence is a little bit nebulous. It's not quite clear. Then the second sentence explains it. Now, now you know, drinking um, from one spirit or giving to drink of the same one spirit, how does it explain being baptized by the spirit? It doesn't. So for that, we reject those interpretations. So, go back to them. What then does the clause of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, again it reads, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So what does that really mean? It is a reference to baptism with the spirit. You notice, that's why words are important. Remember the first one, baptism which takes you and places you in Christ. Now we're talking about baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's uh, something quite different. So thus we have then that the second doctrine the apostle teaches in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 is the doctrine of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now the two doctrines of this verse related to the Holy Spirit are common to all believers. See, all believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit as well as baptized with the Holy Spirit. Two different things. So my point is that the second clause of this version teaches a different doctrine from the first clause of the verse. So let me justify this interpretation. Now the conjunction and in the first clause of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 again it reads, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. That word and allows us that the apostle is adding additional doctrine to the first one of baptism by the spirit. However, the apostle used figurative language to describe his doctrine of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now drinking involves some form of fluid, but here the apostle says that all believers were caused to drink the one spirit. To drink the one spirit. Now certainly the apostle is not being literal. Since there is no way we can drink the Holy Spirit who is a person and also God. How can we drink him? But in using this imagery of drinking, the apostle was thinking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that results in him indwelling all believers. In him indwelling all believers. Now there's another factor to consider. To help us understand the second clause of 1 Corinthians 12, starting again, say, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And that involves the baptism, that, that involves the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, those uh, 
who drink the Holy Spirit are believers. Now the Holy Spirit is the object involved in the drinking. But the one who causes believers to drink or who gives the drink is missing. Jesus says, look at it again. He says, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Who gave us? So someone is missing. That's what we're saying. Whoever did that is missing. Well, but however, following the pattern of describing the baptism with the Holy Spirit, we have noted the missing subject is Jesus Christ, who causes believers to drink the Holy Spirit. See, now that's, that's why we look at these things in a little more, look at the details of Greek and so forth. Now, see, here's the thing. When we drink something, it remains inside of us. That's why I know some of you are thick at you. You put too much sugar in your body. Drink too much sugar. You don't know what's doing to you. It remains in you. And causes all kinds of problems anyway. Therefore, when the apostle indicates that we drink the one spirit, he means that we all receive the Holy Spirit who then indwells us. Because when you drink, it's inside. It goes inside of you. So to drink Christ means he, I mean to drink the Holy Spirit now means he'll be indwelling us. He'll be indwelling us. So it would seem then that as the apostle wrote this figurative clause, he was thinking of the Holy Spirit that will be in the believer that our Lord spoke of in terms of water. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. John chapter 7 verse 37 to 39. It is, on the last day, I mean on the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now you're not going to do a spring of water flowing out from you. Cannot mean literally, right? He said, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. After that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus has not yet been glorified. Now, we will not comment much on this passage at this time. Nonetheless, the second example of the unit of, uh, unity of believers in the body of Christ, that is the church, is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So what is this baptism with the Spirit? That is the second example of unity of believers in the body of Christ. Now, we have studied in detail 
this doctrine of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Uh, some of you who were here when we started, you probably don't remember now. We have studied this doctrine in detail. And we did that in our study of the Gospel of Luke, which have been several years ago. But for our purposes, what I would do is I will summarize the doctrine here. However, if you want a more detailed study of that doctrine, I refer you to the lessons available on the website of Berean Bible Church, Best Springs. I have to use that word, Best Springs, because there are people who go there, they say, they see Berean Bible Church. But when they open it's not, they say, no, it's, you have to say Best Springs. You, if you go to that website, you begin lesson 54 of the Luke studies. That's what we began to marshal out this doctrine in detail. So you can go back there and get it if you have forgotten. But I'm just going to summarize it for the purpose of this particular study. Now the doctrine of baptism with the Holy Spirit is one that has caused much confusion among Christians, especially in our time. Now this doctrine of baptism with the Holy Spirit is more popularly described as baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's how it's more popularly described. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now I think that such a description is quite misleading. And perhaps adds to the confusion of the doctrine. For you see, when an average English reader thinks of the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit, he or she would normally take it to mean that the baptism belongs to the Holy Spirit. Now, if the individual is in full command of the English language, the person could understand the phrase as baptism by the Holy Spirit. In other words, if they say baptism of the Holy Spirit, somebody who has a more, you know, command of the English language can say, okay, that means baptism by the Holy Spirit. Implying that you see it really is a function carried out by the Holy Spirit. Now this is because we know the preposition of in English could communicate the sense of by. The word of in English, you can't have that sense of by. Let me give you an illustration. For example, if we say the works of Shakespeare what does that mean? <laughs> it means, we can say, we mean they walk by six, right? So you see the word of can mean by. Hence, the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit is confusing. Because if somebody puts in baptism by the Holy Spirit, then that confuses from what we studied the first time. Furthermore, there's really no justification ever from the New Testament Greek for using such a phrase, in my understanding. In fact, the closest use of the word of in connection with the Holy Spirit is with the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the closest that we use that seed word of. Now we say this because in every instance 
associated with the filling of the Spirit in the Bible, the Greek text is literally filled of the Spirit. Filled of the Spirit. And I labored when I taught Ephesians to, take, to win us off from when some people tell me, I'm filled with the Spirit. I said, no, you're filled of the Spirit. But, you know, it's just part of what we say, filled with the Spirit. No, you're not filled with the Spirit. You're filled of the Spirit. Now, for example, look at what we see. When Elizabeth was described as filled with the Spirit, as we read in Luke 1 verse 41. Let's look at that. Luke 1 41. Luke chapter 1 verse 41. It reads, Luke chapter 1 verse 41 reads, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby lived in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, see that sentence, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Greek actually reads this way. This is what the Greek says. Elizabeth was filled of the Holy Spirit. Now, Apostle Peter was described as filled, according to our English versions, with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. He reads, Acts chapter 4, verse 8 reads, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people. Again, the expression, filled with the Holy Spirit, is more literally from the Greek, filled of the Holy Spirit. Now the point is that in all passages, in the New Testament Greek, where the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit is mentioned, the literal reading is simply of the Holy Spirit. Not with the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Of course, it is because Greek grammarians describe the expression of the Holy Spirit as representing what is known as the genitive of content. That the word of is replaced with the word with. That's why they did that. But then that causes another problem. So, that is why in all eight passages in the Greek New Testament, that the filling of the Holy Spirit is mentioned, the expression fill with the Holy Spirit is used in most of our English versions. Now that's us little Greek. Now, by the way, the only passage though in the Greek New Testament, in uh, that's in Ephesians five eighteen. I'm not going to go into that. That the phrase "filled with uh, the Holy Spirit" that does not conform to the literal translation of "filled of the Holy Spirit." There, it does not use the same Greek word. That means filling. Not the same Greek word. As in the other eight passages, that literally reads filled of the Holy Spirit. Now, our emphasis, though, is that 
to be true to the scripture, the term baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, should never be used. Instead, the correct term should be baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, what exactly then is this baptism with the Holy Spirit? What is it? Now, to answer this question, we need to understand John's baptism. Since that is actually the basis of the prophecy about the baptism with the Holy Spirit in the passage we began with in the first half, which you go back to uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Let's go back to that. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. It reads, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who more powerful than I will come. The thorns of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, water baptism as practiced by John, involved three elements. The baptizer, the uh, baptized, and the medium or means of the baptism. So these three elements are reflected in the various baptisms connected with water that are described in the New Testament. Now John baptized individuals using water, as for example in that first part of Luke 3, 16, when he said, I, I baptize you with water. I baptize you with water. So here the baptizer was John. The baptized were the various individuals that came to John, and the medium or means was water. So the phrase with water indicates that water is the means of John's baptism. Now whenever John baptized, he used water, which is either mentioned specifically or implied. So the point we seek then to uh, emphasize is that John's baptism consists of three elements. Consists of three elements. But why do we emphasize these three elements? Why? It is because the baptism of Jesus, as John prophesied, must also have these three elements if the original audience will understand or have a basic understanding of John's prophecy. Because he's, he's telling them, He's going to do what I'm, going, what I'm doing, but he do it on a higher level. So they have to know what he's talking about, what's involved, what John has been doing. So following this pattern, the three elements then involved with the baptism with the Holy Spirit are, of course, Jesus Christ, the one baptizing. And believers, as those baptized, and the Holy Spirit, 
as the means of baptism in question. So then without going into uh, further detail of John's water baptism, as it relates to baptism with the Holy Spirit or with the Spirit, we can then assert that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the church so that individual believer is personally indwelt by the Holy Spirit and benefits from the presence of the Holy Spirit in the individual's life. Again, let me repeat that. That it is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the church so that individual believer is personally indwelled by the Holy Spirit and benefits from the presence of the Holy Spirit in that individual's life. Now the outpouring of the Holy Spirit involves the baptizer, the Lord Jesus Christ. The means of the baptism, the Holy Spirit. The baptized believers. So let me just find this interpretation with few of the arguments I gave when we studied in detail this doctrine of baptism with the Holy Spirit in our study in Luke. Let me just give you a few of these. First, it is this interpretation that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the outpouring of the Spirit that fits the prophecies of many Old Testament prophets concerning one of the activities of the Messiah. Now, prophet Ezekiel prophesied about his baptism with the Holy Spirit when he wrote in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 30. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 30. He reads, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 30. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 30. He reads, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Now, remember last week I mentioned the 1948 action of the Belfort Declaration that established Israel. Now, it's not what the Bible actually says. It's not it yet. Now, here's what of it is those who are to be returned have to be the remnants. And here's, look at what we have here. He has said, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Now look at how, what he will do. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Now all those that return were unbelievers. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you here is a key that you can run away from. He said, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. That is regeneration. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. So the use of water here for uh, purification in Ezekiel's prophecy answers to the use of water in John's baptism. However, it is those who have been cleansed that will receive the Holy Spirit. Now note that Ezekiel makes a distinction between new spirit in verse 26 and God's spirit in the phrase of verse 27 where it says, my spirit in you, my spirit in you, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So then the putting of God's spirit in the individual cleanse is the same as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit resulting in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer. Prophet Joel, Joel or Joel also prophesied about this baptism with the Spirit as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Joel chapter 2 verse 28. Joel Chapter 2, verse 28. Joel, book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28. Joel, chapter 2, verse 28 says, And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see vision. Now, Apostle Peter used this prophecy as he explained the baptism with the Spirit that occurred on the day of Pentecost. So the point is that the baptism with the Spirit is prophesied in terms of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament scripture. So, that's the first thing that we need to look at. Second, it is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the church, which occurred on the day of Pentecost, that is meant then in the phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now you see, before the Lord Jesus left this planet after his resurrection, he promised his disciples that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit according to the passage that we started previously in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. Acts chapter 1 verse 5. We have cited it. And uh, once you get to the Acts chapter 1, hold on to Acts because the next uh, few more passages, three more, so we'll be still in that Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 5 says, For John baptized with water, 
that in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now about 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out to all believers according to Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. He reads, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Third, Apostle Peter understood the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a baptism with the Holy Spirit that the Lord promised. That's the way he understood it. See, he had witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit before the household of Colonus. Now, Colonus in Acts chapter 10 uh, has been, what happened there has been similar to what happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, some Christians were upset that Peter went to, gen- to Gentiles. Now, this one of those things that you have to uh, keep remembering. That's why I keep saying the importance of being grounded in doctrine. That you are saved doesn't mean everything has changed. It doesn't mean that. Now, this is where people, all they thought about is Jew and Gentile. How can you go to a Gentile house? Now, these are Christians, the very first people that experienced of the Lord Jesus Christ in a very personal way. They were the first people that received this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Look at their thinking. They still go back to their old place because they have not been rooted yet. I mean, this is still the church in its infancy. They are not rooted in to understand, no, God is a God for everyone. You are not supposed to be making distinction. Not in a spiritual life for, for sure. So, some of these people, they started to murmur, to complain to Peter. So, so you went to the Gentiles and you ate with them? I mean, they just see where they were criticizing him. Oh, well, to satisfy these misguided Christians, Peter narrated what happened in the house of Colonus. And so, that's what he used to uh, uh, get them to come to their senses. Now, when recounting his experience with the Gentiles in the house of Colonus, Peter described then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at that occasion as a baptism with the Holy Spirit. As it is clear then in Acts chapter 11 verses 15 through 17. Acts chapter 11 verses 15 through 17. This is what he said. He said, 
As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord has said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Now here is the thing that you have to look at and say, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, he's taking their minds back to what is the fundamental. You have the same Holy Spirit. So how can you say the other believer is different from you? How can you say that? But this is something you have to get inside your mind. You, you have to train. See, when the Bible tells us to train ourselves into righteousness, that's part of it. Is you learn this doctrine, you keep going it over and going it over and going it over. It becomes a part of you. To replace that natural instinct, whatever it is, or whatever you've grown up with, that natural thing, it needs to be eradicated by constantly flushing it out with truth. That's what Paul, uh, Peter is saying here. If he gave them what he gave us, how can he say otherwise? There's no way you can say, say that. Say that's why I, say, I couldn't think of opposing God. And those who have tried to oppose God, they haven't voted well for them. Now Peter then clearly understood though, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a baptism with the Holy Spirit. So this outpouring of the Holy Spirit to Gentiles was done exactly in the same way as to Jewish believers so that they will recognize that Gentiles are believers in Christ as the Jewish believers. So it is in this, it is in this argument that Peter used in the first church council in Jerusalem to indicate that Gentile Christians should not be burdened with ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law, such as circumcision, now his argument is stated in Acts 15 verse 8. Again, I, in the first session, I made a whole lot about the ability of reasoning, being able to argue, reason. Now that's what Paul, uh, Peter is doing. That's it. If you read our scripture, that's what when they lay out these doctrines or teachings. That's what they are doing. They are giving us arguments why we should do this. Look at him based on that experience. He says, God knows the heart. God who knows the heart. Showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. Just as he did to us. So these people that Paul and Barnabas went and preached. They have received the Holy Spirit. So how can you argue otherwise? Again, that's why I keep saying, go back to the fundamental. So that's the third thing that we need to understand in what uh, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is concerned with. Fourth, the interpretation that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit better explains how the Holy Spirit comes into the believer. Now, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit been in the believer in several passages. You take, for example, Apostle Paul assured the Corinthians that the Holy Spirit lived in them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. 
1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 reads, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. But there is really no other place where the apostle taught explicitly of how the Holy Spirit came to be in the Corinthians or any other believers for that matter. Nowhere. Now the reason the Apostle Paul did not teach how the Holy Spirit came to be inside of believers is that he understood that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that means by which the Holy Spirit lives in a believer that he taught using imagery in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 that we have just examined in the image of drinking, uh, drinking the Spirit. So we have provided them reasons for our interpretation that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ to the church so that the individual believer is personally indwelt by the Holy Spirit and benefits from the presence of, uh, Spirit, of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. Now, you notice again what we're looking at. The Lord said, I will be in you, you will be in me. Now, we'll see how that is working out. Baptism by the Spirit. Baptism with the Spirit. By, that's how you get in. With, that's why the Holy Spirit comes in. So this is what he's trying to uh, provide uh, to the Corinthians and to, to the Church of Christ. Anyway, so we have again provided reasons for our interpretation that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. However, there are two facts we want to bring to your attention having stated this. First, not everyone that receives the outpouring of the Spirit remains full of the Spirit. Not everyone that receives it remains full of the Spirit. For you see, if this was not the case, when the apostles elected the uh, 11 men to serve the early church in administration of the material affairs of the church, they would not have specified that the men chosen should be full of the Holy Spirit, since all the early disciples experienced this outpouring of the Spirit. But because not everyone that experiences that outpouring of the Holy Spirit remains full of the Holy Spirit, then the qualification that includes being full of the Spirit is given in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Acts chapter 6, verse 3 reads, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit. 
and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them. Now that phrase, full of the Spirit, means one who is completely under the control of the Spirit. He is the person who remains under what we call the normal feeling of the Spirit, which we describe as being under the control of the Holy Spirit. Second, we must be careful to note that there is a difference between the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the feeling of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is a one-time event in the life of the believer at a point of salvation, while the feeling of the Holy Spirit occurs several times in the life of a believer. In fact, the normal Christian living requires constant normal feeling of the Holy Spirit. For you see, without the normal feeling of the Holy Spirit, no believer could live the Christian life. This is the reason we are commanded to be filled of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 It is Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery instead be filled with the Spirit Now the phrase be filled with the Spirit we studied it in detail, and I remember, and I told you, it's best translated, be filled of the Spirit. Be filled of the Spirit. To indicate the Holy Spirit is in control of the believer, instead of thinking of a content that is filled, say, with fluid. In other words, when people say, fill with, you think about a container, you feel something. But we say, no, that's not it. It is filled off. That is mean controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's what the filling of the Spirit is. So in any event then, the fact that baptism with the Spirit happens to every believer at a point of salvation indicates that it is an example of unity in the body of Christ. So, you now know the basis for all what we're talking about, about having diversity and unity. Now, we're going to deal more with this diversity issue. It's still coming up. But at least we begin to see when we talk about unity, you know why it's important. Why you must train your mind, constantly train your soul to function that way, to think that way. That when you think about your fellow believer, you're thinking that you are placed in the same body. That is the basis of the instruction that we've been looking at. So we ended our study this morning by reminding you of the responsibility that you have as a believer in Christ with respect to all this. You should recognize the unity 
and diversity in the church and act accordingly. In other words, you should not expect uniformity in the body of Christ, whether you measure people by their ethnicity or by their social standing. God has created diversity. And we're going to develop that point later on in the study. God has created diversity in the body of Christ because each believer has been uniquely placed in the church of Christ to carry out a unique function that is in the church fulfilling its function on this earth. So, do not try to eradicate diversity. Cherish it with focus on the unity that exists in the body of Christ. Let's pray. As we close our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet. You probably didn't understand what was going on, but you're glad to hear whatever you're hearing. Or you may not be. But here is the thing that I, I can identify with, or you should identify with. And that is this. That you are sitting or hearing this is because God loves you. He has a plan for you. That's why you're hearing what you're hearing. Now love is not just people saying something. It's a thought action phenomenon whereby you think good, you act good. So God loves you means he thought about you when no other person thought about you. He thought about you from eternity. And that is why from eternity it was decided that one member of the Godhead, the second member, the Lord Jesus Christ was going to come to this planet to come and be a sacrifice for sin. See, God cannot tolerate sin. He cannot accept sin in any form or shape. Therefore, sin must be judged and condemned. You couldn't take sin yourself. If you're condemned by it, if you pay for your sin, you have to stay in hell forever. So God, in his love, said, no, I'm going to pay this out myself. He wants it to be done right. So that's why he came himself. So Jesus Christ came to this planet, took on a human form, went through teaching, doing miracles, did everything to show he is God in flesh. After he finished teaching, showing and proving who he is, it was time for him to return to heaven. He has to do so. By fulfilling the purpose which he came, which is to pay for your sins and my sins. And so that's why they came to arrest him, thinking that yes, it's in their hand to kill him. No, it wasn't. That was a plan that he should go that way to return to heaven. So he can pay for your sins and my sins. So when they arrested him, they made a mock trial of him and handed him over to the Romans who soldiers were very skilled in art of torturing people. So they tortured him 
with whips. Those whips were stacked on them. So they would hit him, draw, causing some bruises and blood to ooze out. He never screamed, he never complained. Because he was thinking about you. He loved you so much that he wasn't so much concerned with that, this pain. And eventually they marched him, gave him his cross to carry up to Golgotha. And there they laid him down on that cross, tied him up, began to drive those nails on him. You think about it. You get stuck with a little needle or something sharp. You know how you feel the pain. Can you imagine the pain that the Lord Jesus Christ must face or was bearing when they drove those nails one by one to him, to the wood. He didn't stay, he didn't cry, he didn't raise his voice. They lifted that, sank it to the ground, putting more pressure, tearing his body, so to say. He still didn't say what? That's a physical pain. But the last three hours, when my sins and your sins were being judged on the Son of God, that was a pain beyond measure to bear one who has never known sin. To be judged for your sins and my sins. It was so unbearable to him. That's why he let out that cry. Eli, Eli, Lamasubakatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may be brought in. He was forsaken that you may have life. How? The Bible said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? Again, the Bible says, this are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him, you will have life through his name. If you trust that Christ died on that cross for you, was buried and rose again the third day, you will have the forgiveness of your sin, no matter how awful you have sinned. That will be cleansed and you will receive life. That you will spend eternity with God. You also receive Christ's righteousness transferred to you so that you are also qualified to be in heaven with him. So believe in him, and you have eternal life. On the other hand, if you say, I don't want to, or oh, I can postpone it, my friend, you don't know that you have the next minute to be on this planet. So this is a time of salvation. Believe in Him and escape eternal judgment. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us to the things we have studied so that we understand clearly in our soul the basis of the unity in the body of Christ as the baptism by the Holy Spirit and baptism with the Holy Spirit. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will sink to us in our soul so that we constantly meditate and understand that we are one in the body because of what your son Jesus Christ has achieved for us. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.